Well, welcome to this uh, session, the first of three on a study of the subjects of marriage, uh, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, I hope you're going to be blessed by this teaching. I uh, trust that you're going to be challenged because I want to say up front that if you are raised with a traditional view of uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, my goal in this teaching is to change your mind. Now, I recognize there are many different interpretations of the material that we're going to study. I also recognize that we are going to go to heaven because we are covered by the blood of Jesus and not because of our different interpretations. Having said that, I am going to attempt to try to change your mind or at least expand it and challenge you to think some thoughts you may never have thought before about this very important subject. I will tell you up front, when it comes to the subject of divorce, I am probably more conservative than most of you that will hear this teaching. I don't agree with some of the standard traditional interpretations of scriptural divorce and innocent parties and I don't think uh, that's what the Bible teaches. I will tell you up front, when it comes to the subject of remarriage, I am probably more liberal than some of you are. I also disagree with traditional positions on that subject. I believe I'm more conservative on divorce and liberal on remarriage because Jesus was. I hope what I'm trying to do is teach what Jesus taught. I don't uh, claim infallibility, but I do claim a very, very strong desire to be honest to His Word, and I hope that's what you'll think I've done. Let me start with an old joke about a couple in their 90s that appeared before a judge declaring that they wanted a divorce. And the judge was perplexed. You are in your 90s. Why have you waited so long to seek a divorce? They said, well, we just wanted to wait until the kids were dead. Well, The story has a moral, and that is, we are no longer shocked to hear about who might be getting a divorce. It's no longer shocking uh, to hear of the impact of divorce. Sadly, even among Christian circles, all of the research indicates that people with an evangelical faith, by that they believe in the inspiration of Scripture, they believe in the deity of Jesus, that He is the one way to God. All the research indicates that evangelicals are divorcing as just a high a rate in our country as those without such faith or with no faith at all. I need to say up front, I do not intend... To make light of the pain of divorce. I know some of you. In this room or that will hear this on tape. Have been through a divorce. I'm not going to act like I have any idea. How much that hurts. Uh, hardly anyone. In this room. Or that will hear this on tape. Has not been touched by divorce. At least in their immediate family. Or their close friends. So we all have some idea of what a tragedy this is. But I can't say I have personally walked down that terrible road. And so I just need to say up front that if I say something, these three sessions, that seems insensitive to that pain, please forgive me in advance because that is not my intention. I hope the fact that I have not been divorced does not color what I'm going to teach. Just as I hope if you have been divorced, you don't allow that to color how you hear what I say. Because at the end of the day, all of us have the same goal, to please God, to honor Him. And so I have no agenda when I teach this series. I'm not trying to be radical for radical sake. I'm not trying to make anybody happy or make anybody angry. I'm simply trying to be true to my understanding of Scripture about this very, very critical subject that has and continues to impact so many people uh, that we love. What we're going to do in these three sessions is look at Scripture in its totality. In this first session, we will look at the subject of divorce and remarriage in the Old Testament. Next time we will consider what Jesus taught, and then we will conclude with what Paul 
taught and with some summary questions and answers. So let's begin. We begin by affirming that God is sovereign, not man, over the institution of marriage. It's a human institution, but it's not a human invention. Marriage is not a human expedience. It was instituted by God, and it's going to remain until the life to come. Jesus said that when the Son of Man returns, it'll be like the days of Noah, with people marrying and being given in marriage. In other words, Jesus said, right up until the second coming, people are going to be planning weddings. Marriage is here to stay. It's the divinely designed uh, gift of God to be the foundation for family of all human society. And so I think before we consider what breaks a marriage, we have to begin with the ideal. What makes a marriage? What is a marriage for? And if you're taking notes, the first thing we'll say is that it's for procreation. Or to be more specific, it's for the expression of sexuality and the production of a godly offspring. That one of the functions of marriage is to be a teaching institution in the instruction of godliness for coming generations. Malachi, uh, first let's read Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we see again that marriage, this creation of male and female, this was God's doing. And this idea of producing offspring was God's idea. And marriage is the context for that. In Malachi 2 verse 15, has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. One of the tragedies of divorce, it disrupts God's design for producing the next generation of faithful believers. Marriage was designed by God to guarantee the faithfulness of future generations. The book of Deuteronomy says, as we're walking along the road, as we're lying down, as we're getting up, we are constantly imparting man and woman to the children, the principles of God. Now, this command to procreate has two very important implications. One is that marriage is a heterosexual union. I know there's a lot of controversy right now about what is called homosexual marriage. And while I believe all human beings should have their basic rights as human protected, I don't believe the word marriage should be used of anyone but a man and a woman. Because that's what God designed and marriage is God's institution. Second, it's important to say that sex in marriage is holy And it's expected that sex was not a result of the fall. Now, granted, the fall has brought a lot of complications to the gift of sex and all the lust and the sins that come with that. But the idea of two people coming together in sexual intimacy was God's idea. It was instituted before the fall. God created us sexual beings, male and female. And marriage in the Bible is meant to be more than just mating. It's the pursuit of intimacy involving that sexual union. And that is why the the word the Bible uses the most for a husband and wife coming together is the word knowing. Because they're pursuing intimacy. And this is very important to God. Paul will say, and we'll look at it more in a few weeks, in 1 Corinthians 7. Since there is so much immorality... Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. You see, the Bible describes two kinds of sexual sin. In the church, we typically have only talked about one. The first obvious kind of sexual sin is when you give your body 
in intimacy to the wrong person. If you give your body in sexual intimacy to anybody besides your marriage mate, this is sin. This is not what God created sexual intimacy for. However, the second sin, which we rarely talk about in the church, the first is giving your body to the wrong person. The second is keeping your body from the right person. This too is sin. God gave the gift of marriage for the expression of sexual intimacy, and the husband and the wife are under God's order to fulfill their marital duty to each other, to withhold sex from a partner as a bargaining chip is sin. God designed marriage so that we would not burn. So strong is the divinely created drive to express oneself sexually. We'll see later, it is considered a doctrine of demons to forbid marriage. Because marriage is God's gift for the expression of this divinely given drive. Now, we need to add that celibacy is also a gift. It is a gift of God. But it should only be expected of those to whom God has given the gift. We'll talk more about that later. But Jesus will say, to live celibate is a call most cannot accept. So marry. At the same time, and we'll talk more about this later as well, we should esteem those who can live the celibate life. They're not strange. They're not weird. We shouldn't feel sorry for them. If someone has received the gift from God to live a celibate single life so that they can give themselves wholly to the pursuit of the kingdom of God, this is a good thing. And these people should be esteemed in our midst. But this is one of God's designs for marriage, procreation. By that I mean the expression of our sexuality and the production of godly offspring. The second A goal of marriage by God's design is self-realization. We read in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. for She was taken out of man for this reason. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, would you please notice, here is man. He is placed in a paradise, a perfect environment. There is no sin, not in the environment, not in his own nature to contaminate anything. Not only that, but he has constant, continual intimacy with God. And even with all that, God says, this isn't best. This is not the best environment for him to be all I want him to be. That he can't become all I design him to be without a helper. The essence of marriage is companionship. Please notice these verses say nothing about children. A childless Marriage is still a marriage in every sense of the word. Because the goal of marriage is to remove loneliness. What makes marriage unique and special is this pledge to partner with someone else to do life together. What makes divorce so heinous in the eyes of God is a willingness to Break that promise to another person. In Malachi 2.14, we read, You ask why? 
It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you've broken faith with her, though she is your partner. The wife of your marriage covenant. In Proverbs 2, he turns the table and talks to the woman who's left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. See, what makes this partnership unlike any other is this power of covenant. What holds a marriage together is not sex, not even children. It's promise. Do you remember Joseph and Mary? And the Bible says they are pledged to be married or betrothed. It was the practice of the Jew that you would make that commitment to your mate. And for one year you would live engaged or betrothed. And even though you didn't have sex with each other. And even though you didn't uh, live together. You were considered each other's mates. And so later Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant and he can only assume she has been unfaithful and so the bible says he planned to divorce her why does he need to divorce her they haven't had sex together they don't live together they haven't had the ceremony yet do you see among the people of god how strong this idea of making a promise before god is he had made a promise before God to be her mate. I think this is why when Jesus talks about marriage and divorce and remarriage in Matthew 5, the very next section of text is on the importance of keeping your vows. If you say yes, make it mean yes. And if you say no, make it mean no. And don't make a yes a maybe. Keep your promises. This is God's design for marriage. It's this place where we can express sexuality and raise up godly children. It's this place where we can become what we were meant to be because we have a partner to do life together. And then third, God's purpose for marriage is illustration. That marriage is to be an illustration in history of how God is in eternity. Genesis 2.24 is the only statement in the Bible on marriage that's repeated four different times. Look at one of them with me in Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Just as marriage forms this mystical union and two Unique individuals become one. So, when we are united with Christ, there is this union between Christ and His bride, the church, that takes place. And so God searches in human history for an illustration of His covenant that He's making with His people. Of His commitment to be a promise-keeping God who is faithful and trustworthy. And God says, I am going to choose marriage as the best illustration I can find to show the world what kind of God I am. I'm a God that keeps my promises. Do you understand then why Satan would especially target Christian marriage for assault? Because when Christians divorce at a rate equal to the unbelieving world, the illustration is destroyed that God is a promise keeper. Divorce is the breaking of a covenant in which both parties agreed to provide companionship. It declares those promises are no longer expected or acquired. And so it destroys this ideal illustration of the faithfulness of God. See, we're talking now about the ideal. We'll get to the real in a moment. But right now we're talking about the ideal. Ideally, marriage is for the expression of sexuality and the raising of godly kids. Marriage is for people to partner together in life, in covenant. Marriage is for the world to get a glimpse of how faithful God is. This is what marriage is for. This is the ideal. So, related to that, let me just make quick, three quick more thoughts. And then we'll get to the real. That would mean then that ideally, in the Bible... 
First, that marriage is monogamous. That God did not create Eve and Ethel in case Adam couldn't get along with the first wife. God certainly could have created a succession of wives. I guess he could have taken a rib out of both sides if he wanted to. It would somehow have marred the picture. Because God's relationship with his people in the Bible is always pictured as monogamous. Polygamy does show up early in the Bible. In chapter 4 of Genesis, it shows up in a man named Lamech, who it should be noted is of the line of Cain, the ungodly line, not the godly line of Seth. Consistently in the Bible, in the Old Testament, polygamy is pictured negatively. And in the New Testament, it disqualified one from church leadership, that it was important For Jesus' church to be led by men who could model the ideal monogamous marriage. However, please take note. There is no place in the Bible where having more than one wife is called adultery. No one in the Bible who has more than one wife is ever told to get rid of his extra spouses or to leave his polygamous relationship. Um, Several years ago, I was in Zambia. And out in the bush, we were preaching, and there are many people out there in that part of the world, just like Uganda, where I just returned, where polygamy is still practiced. And I was told before I went, don't be the ugly American who has all the answers for the church. Let the Africans lead the African church. And that's good wisdom. But after our uh, day of preaching, uh, the leaders of the church came to me and some other men I was with with this question. I noticed a poor little woman. She was all huddled up, bent down, cowered by the church building. And she was the issue. She wanted to be baptized. However, she was the second wife of a man. And the elders and leaders of that church, having been influenced by the traditional teaching on marriage and divorce, that if you have more than one wife, you are living in adultery, said, according to our understanding, she needs to leave this man or she cannot be baptized. What do you think? Well, at that time, I wasn't nearly as sure as I am now about what I believe the Bible says. And I didn't want to be the ugly American, so I declined and said, I trust the leaders of this church to make this decision. They sent her home. They told her they wouldn't baptize her. And that she would go to her village, leave her husband. Now, there's a famine going on in Zambia. People are starving to death. The AIDS crisis is rampant. So essentially, they said, you leave your only means to eat. Be homeless, probably starve to death, and we'll baptize you. Otherwise, you're not a fit candidate for the kingdom of God. I have begged God to forgive me for that day. I'll never make that mistake again. Anytime we read the Bible where we make it hard for people who want to come to Jesus, we've read the Bible poorly. Having said that, we're talking the ideal. And the ideal is that marriage is monogamous. One man, one woman, one lifetime. Second, the ideal is that marriage is primary. What do I mean? A man is to leave his father and his mother and establish his own family. They say blood is thicker than water. Blood is not thicker than promise. My wife is priority number one. It even supersedes my priority and obligations to my parents. And please notice, God put husband-wife in the garden, not husband or parent-child. When God said the man needs a helper to do life with, He gave him a wife Your best friend should be your mate. We often see when marriages get dull that parents make the mistake of asking the kids to fill that void. 
All other companion substitutes ultimately fail. They are not God's ideal. Marriage is monogamous. Marriage is to be primary. And number three, marriage clearly is to be permanent. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. You would almost expect he should love his wife. That's not what it says. He'll leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The word literally means to be glued together. The idea is they are so affixed, so joined to each other, that if you try to separate them, you're going to tear something apart and it's going to do damage. These two just can't come apart without something really getting torn and broken. And who does the gluing? Not the judge. Not the minister. Matthew 19. Jesus said, haven't you read? That at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. We're going to see later that any time you ask Jesus about divorce, He always goes back to the ideal. And we start there. However, we've had this brief, hopefully important look at Genesis 1 and 2. The Bible does not stop at Genesis 1 and 2. We have seen the ideal. Now, we're going to consider the real. And look at the rest of the Old Testament. And I've got three statements I want you to... uh, recognize about the teaching of marriage, divorce, remarriage in the Old Testament. Here's statement number one. Divorce is recognized in the Old Testament. The concept of divorce in the Old Testament is biblical. Now, I mean by that the Bible acknowledges it and legislates it. Though divorce is man-made, in the Old Testament it is God-governed. You might actually be surprised to see in the Old Testament how often the mention of divorce appears. I'm just going to give you a few scriptures. Leviticus 21, 13 through 15. Talking about the priest. says, The woman he marries must be a virgin. He must not marry a widow, a divorced woman, or a woman defiled by prostitution, but only a virgin from his own people. So he will not defile his offspring among his people. I'm the Lord who makes him holy. That verse simply acknowledges there were divorced people among the people of God. In Numbers 30 and in verse 9, Any vow or obligation taken by a widow or divorced woman will be binding on her. Again, simply recognizing there were divorced people among the children of Israel, the people of God. Leviticus twenty two thirteen is interesting. It's talking about the priest again. It says, If his daughter becomes widowed or is divorced, yet has no children, and she returns to live in her father's house as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food. No unauthorized person, however, may eat any of it. Now, the priest's food consisted of the offerings the people would bring to the tabernacle or the temple. That was the priest's food. And so God had very clear legislation that only certain people could eat the priest's food because it was the offerings of the people of God. They had to be ceremonially clean. This is interesting because, again, in Numbers 18, verse 11, it's very, very clear. Don't you let anybody unclean eat the priest's food. But in that text that we just read, it is clear a priest's daughter who is divorced can come back and eat at his table. How can she do that? Because she's still clean in the eyes of God, even though she's been divorced. Then Deuteronomy 22 is an interesting passage. There you have a man who's tried to defraud another man, claiming that his daughter was not a virgin when they married Here's the legislation. 
They shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the girl's father because this man has given an Israelite virgin a bad name. She shall continue to be his wife. He must not divorce her as long as he lives. If a man happens to meet a virgin who's not pledged to be married and rapes her, they're discovered. He shall pay the girl's father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the girl for he's violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. So divorce first appears in the biblical record as a full-blown practice. God didn't make divorce. But there is much legislation in the Bible to govern it. Because it was happening among the people of God. Divorce is recognized in the Old Testament. What's more, divorce is emphasized in the Old Testament. And we're going to turn now to the primary uh, text, which talks about that in Deuteronomy 24. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, Because he finds something indecent about her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man. And her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. This would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now before this legislation, the men of Israel were orally divorcing their wives as was the custom of the heathen nations around them. And women in that time had no recourse. The husband could just announce that she was divorced. And she was out on her own. And in those days, there was no dividing the assets. There was no uh, alimony. She was out. It is one reason why in the Bible you read this stuff about the women wearing so much jewelry and nose rings and earrings and all these pearls they'd wrap in their hair. Do you know why they would dress that way, ladies? Because if your husband kicked you out, all you had was what you were wearing. And so you wore as much as you could to secure your future in case that ever happened to you. Now, this is the text that the Jews are going to ask Jesus about that we'll consider next time. They say, what is this displeasing thing that Moses told us to divorce our wives about? There were two extreme views in Jesus' day. One was by a rabbi named Shammai who said it was adultery. And the other was a rabbi named Hillel who said it was anything. Anything you found displeasing. If you didn't like how she cooked the eggs... If you didn't like how she looked in the morning or the way she was aging, you could divorce her. Now, you could imagine that Hillel's view was the most popular. They were both extreme. I think they were both wrong. I don't think it was adultery. Because Moses has dealt with adultery two chapters earlier. In Deuteronomy 22, he says, If a man or woman commits adultery... They are to be stoned. So it makes no sense to me that just two chapters later, he would say, if you commit adultery, get a divorce. No, if you commit adultery, they are to receive capital punishment. So I don't think Shammai's right. He's not talking about adultery. At the same time, I don't think Hillel right. He's talking about something that is very repulsive. The Hebrew phrase is aroth debar. And you get that sense that it's something very serious because that very phrase is used in the chapter right before. And let me show you, if you have sensitive uh, ears, you might want to close them for a second. Deuteronomy 23. Designate a place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with. And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. God says, I don't want waste all around the camp of my people. The word excrement is aroth debar. And so, Moses says, you have found something in your wife that is very, very indignant and repulsive to you. It's not adultery. You would stone her if it was adultery. But there's something going on that has really hindered the ability of this marriage to do what God wants marriage to do. Now, please notice Deuteronomy 24 is not commanding divorce. 
It is allowing divorce. And actually, I think Moses' legislation, instead of promoting divorce, was intended to restrict and discourage divorce. For one thing, the very act of having to write out that certificate would help. In the old days, a man could just say, you're divorced, and she's out. But now he's got to write it down. He's got to go find witnesses. He's got to take it to an official or a judge. And the whole process gives him time to cool down and to rethink what he's about to do. Also, it would prevent legalists from sanctioned wife swapping. And don't think the heart of man isn't wicked enough to think such thoughts. That I can find my buddy and say, you know what? Why don't I throw my wife out and you throw your wife out? We'll live with each other's wives for a season. And then when we're tired, we'll take our wives back. And Moses says, don't you dare think you can get away with that in the eyes of God. Now here's the irony. The traditional teaching in Churches of Christ that I grew up with was, if you had been through a divorce and you remarried, you were living in sin... You were living in adultery because in the eyes of God, you were still married to your first wife. So what you had to do was divorce and end the second marriage and go back and marry the first partner. We were teaching people to do exactly the opposite of what God told Moses to tell the people to do. That you don't tear up a second marriage and go back and marry the first partner. That's the one thing you can't do. And then finally, I think the legislation was meant to protect the woman. Who in those days in that heathen world had no protection from divorce. It would protect her from slander that she'd been promiscuous. She wasn't being uh, kicked out because of uh, promiscuity. It would uh, release her from further domestic obligations. It would grant her freedom from interference from her ex in case of a subsequent marriage. And I think that's very important. Please notice her remarriage is almost assumed. She is called the wife of another. It does not say she is still married in the eyes of God to her first husband. One of the great absurdities of theology on this question has been the idea that you can divorce and be married to someone else but still really be married to the person you divorced. Marriage is marriage and divorce is divorce. Just because people shouldn't do something doesn't mean they can't do something. People can get divorces and they can get remarried. And that's how God sees it. When Jesus sees the woman at the well, he says, you've been married five times. He does not say you were married once and you thought you were married four other times, but you really weren't because all that while you were really still married to your first husband. Marriage is marriage. Divorce is divorce. And just because you shouldn't do something doesn't mean that God can't recognize the fact that you have done something. Now, the provision which God's mercy has designed to limit the consequences of our sin doesn't mean God approves of our sin. God doesn't approve of divorce, but He gave legislation to limit the harmful consequences of it. He accommodated His ideal to deal with with the real. But think with me for a second. Does God always do that? For example, we know the children of Israel were always getting divorces and God gave legislation to accommodate the ideal to the real. But they were always falling into the worship of idols. Did God accommodate? Did God say, well, they just keep worshiping idols so we're just going to make allowances? No. He never accommodates idolatry. He does accommodate divorce. Could this imply that there are times when staying in a marriage does greater damage to people than divorce. The next major text on divorce in the Old Testament is in the book of Ezra. The people have returned from exile. And immediately we have the problems of their marrying people of other uh, nationalities. Now in this text you're going to hear the phrase of holy race. 
This text is not condemning interracial marriage. The Bible never does that. It's condemning interfaith marriage. Let's read uh, from chapter 9. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. In other words, they're doing the very thing that got them sent into exile at the beginning with. They're forgetting their mission to be the holy, peculiar people of God. So in chapter 10, we hear the solution. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there's still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. And a great revival under Ezra and Nehemiah took place among the returned exiles. Now, usually when revival breaks out, divorce rates go down. This is one time revival broke out and divorce rates went up. Because these interfaith marriages were strictly forbidden by the law of Moses. They were on the verge of duplicating the very circumstances that led them into their exile. Their national and their spiritual purity was being jeopardized along with the messianic line. And so the restoration leaders had a strong remedy. Let's send all these women away. It's the same phrase that's used in Deuteronomy 24.2. It is clearly a reference to divorce. Nobody was sent away because of adultery. Nobody was sent away because they had been in a previous marriage. The issue wasn't adultery. The issue was idolatry. Again, notice there are some things worse than divorce. And that may have some implications later when we talk about spiritually mixed marriages in 1 Corinthians 7. And then the last significant Old Testament passage on divorce is in the book of Malachi. Read with me starting in verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and wail because He no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. and Do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce. Says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Now, that's a strong word. I hate divorce. But notice, God didn't hate divorce in Ezra. He endorsed it. And He didn't forbid divorce in Deuteronomy 24. He allowed it. What God hates is the kind of divorce Malachi describes. God hates it when divorce is used as a form of legalized adultery. What these men were doing was breaking faith with their partner. The woman they had married when they were both young. And as they have gotten older and she has gotten older, he has decided, I need a younger, newer model. And he's using legislation from the law to call her displeasing and put her aside so he can get some new young thing he's enamored with. And God is saying, do not think for a second your attempt to baptize your adultery under the guise of obeying the law fooled me for a second. I think this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. That we will deal with next time. Don't ever use scripture 
to baptize an adulterous heart. God hates that. However, please do notice, it does not say God hates the divorced. And apart from marrying a priest, God does not forbid the divorced His gift of remarriage. And that's the third very important statement, that remarriage is authorized in the Old Testament. In fact, the text presupposes it. Nowhere in the Old Testament is there a a prohibition to remarry after divorce, except for priest. A priest could not marry a divorced person. But there is nothing in the rest of the entire Old Testament forbidding the divorced to remarry. In fact, the debate never focuses on remarriage in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Because the principle, as Paul laid out, is simply this. It's better to marry than to burn. Now, some are going to say, but Jesus said people who marry after they've gotten a divorce are living in adultery. Did he really? I know that's what the traditional teaching says he said. But hold on to that thought. We'll explore it next time. But as you hold on to it, wrestle with this. I contend that the moral standards of the Old Testament and the New Testament are identical. Because they're based on the character of God and God's character doesn't change. Now there are ceremonial laws that change. We don't have to offer incense or offer blood sacrifices. But God's moral law, do not lie, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not commit adultery. Have these changed? They can't change because they grow from and they reflect the intrinsic holiness of God. God's moral standards are based on His nature. They don't change by dispensations. They can't change because God can't change. And so if it's not adultery, In the Old Testament, for a divorced person to remarry, how can it suddenly become adultery in the New Testament? We have inherited a theology where there's more grace under Moses than there is under Jesus. We must understand that marriage is like the Sabbath. It was made for men, not the other way around. And any marriage, divorce, remarriage position that wounds people who are trying to get their lives together and get right with God and denied mercy must be considered suspect. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. Let me try to summarize quickly because we have a long way still to go. What's the ideal? Jesus always goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. The ideal is that marriage is to be preeminent and permanent. God authored marriage. And only God is authorized to end it. And to end a marriage apart from the direction of God is sin. And Unless the sin of breaking a marriage is acknowledged, confessed, then grace can't be legitimately offered and received. Well, what about scriptural divorces? You know, we have a lot of expressions that you can't find anywhere in the Bible. Divorce is sin. It needs to be confessed And repented of. We believe that God's ideal is attainable and maintainable. That's one reason why He wants leaders, especially of the people of God, to be that model. Divorce is rarely desirable. And among Christians, it should never be inevitable. And I know that's a strong statement. But among Christians... 
If a man and woman both tell me they are sold out to following God and living the way of Jesus, I can't comprehend how divorce is inevitable. And this is the ideal that the church must affirm and the church must proclaim. However, we must deal with the real. I want you to appreciate the dilemma of church leaders. They must hold before the church the ideal, especially when they teach young people about marriage. They must hold up the ideal and say this ideal is attainable and it's maintainable. They must hold up the standard and they must hold the hand of the people who didn't meet it. My father for many years was an important executive with Sears Roebuck and Company. He was used to making decisions. He was a smart, smart man. Sometimes when we would leave church, he would be frustrated at decisions the elders would make. And more than once I heard him say in the car, I'll tell you one thing, if I was ever an elder, I would this and this and this and this. Well, after I became a young preacher and I learned more about what elders really have to deal with, I would often say to my father, give those men some slack, Dad. You have no idea how hard their job is. Some years later, my father was asked to become an elder. And so after about a month or two of that experience, I said, Dad, how is that eldering thing going? And he said, and I quote, Rick, I had no idea how many messed up people come to church. (laughs) And that's true. And that's where messed up people need to be. In church. And so the church must be prophetic and hold up the ideal. And the church must be pastoral and deal with the real. And the real recognizes That God's people need grace and truth. Divorce is sin. And precisely because divorce is sin, divorce is forgivable. This is the purpose of the law, to show us our need for grace. God never lowers His ideal, but He always moves in mercy toward those who fail to meet it. I am very suspicious of theologies that make this whole thing sound simple. And that if people would just do one or two easy steps, they could fix this mess. I prefer instead the statement I came across one time that said, The difference between a problem and a mess is that a problem can be fixed, but a mess can only be redeemed. And rules and positions should never get in the way of redeeming people. So here's the deal. Sin is heinous. And grace is greater than the most heinous sin. And Jesus is full of grace and truth. And so we will look at His teaching next time. God bless you.